As a church, we believe that the gospel is not just for us, but is something for the world. And so our vision, you see that last part, to the end of the earth, that's directly from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And that's our desire, and that's why we've been trying to highlight the need to pray for the country of Afghanistan. Not just because of political issues and uh, the Taliban there, but even for our brothers and sisters, believers who are there. And so I've been devouring everything I can in the moments I have to, to learn about how to pray more specifically and intelligently about what's happening in Afghanistan. And I came across an article that really kind of burned in my heart, that's kind of ringing in my mind this past week. And it was talking about the American Christians who are staying right now in Afghanistan, they're choosing to stay. And the author noted how one commentator was mocking Press Secretary Jen Psaki as she referred to the evacuation of Americans who, quote-unquote, want to leave Afghanistan. And the commentator was mocking the press secretary because she says, why do you need that qualifier? No American wants to stay in a country overrun by terrorists, but there are Americans who want to stay. There are many of those are followers of Jesus. Now, we don't know the specific numbers of how many. We don't know the stories of each person there, but there are many more than you would think who are choosing to stay. Now, why? As you hear the stories, you begin to unearth it more. It's amazing that they are followers of Jesus who love God and love the people of Afghanistan, and they've counted the cost. They understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. The author told the story of one of her friends who decided to stay during an intense moment where the Taliban was taking over a little bit, and she said this, violence from the Taliban had been increasing in the region, and both her sending agency and the State Department were urging American aid workers to leave. Her response at the time was, please don't make me leave Afghanistan. It, it would kill me to leave because she desired to spend all of her days providing medical relief and to share the gospel with the people of Afghanistan. One day, one Taliban terrorist hid a gun under a fake arm bandage, entered that woman's clinic, and began to shoot and kill many of the aid workers there, including this author's friend. And later, after they captured this terrorist, he was said, he was quoted saying, if they kept doing what they were doing, then the whole country would believe in Jesus. Why don't American Christians want to leave? Because they want the people of Afghanistan to believe in Jesus. They, they know that following Jesus is a call to suffering. And they've counted that cost and they believe it's worth it. We're in a part of this letter that Peter's writing to this diaspora Christian group in Asia Minor, and now he's instructing Christians how to live out their identity as people who have received this eternal inheritance from the Father, who have this tremendous joy of having a living hope. Now this identity is a royal priesthood. How do you live that out in the midst of an unbelieving world? How do you bring your faith publicly to society in a way that does good for the people of the world and for the glory of God? And that was the main principle we looked at last week. He looked, unpacked that in verses 11 to 12, that we are kingdom citizens that fight for holiness and do and serve good for the good of others and the glory of God. 
We are kingdom citizens who fight for holiness, serve for the good of others, and the glory of God. And what he does is he takes that principle of 11 and 12 and begins to apply it in some of the main relationships to non-Christians in this early first century church. He applied it last week, we looked at very briefly, governing authorities. And here we look at one other cultural relationship that was pretty dominant in the first century, from servants to masters. But even though we don't have that kind of relationship as common in our society today, it's definitely not in America as much, we have this sense in which we can learn from the principles here of how to handle and respond as followers of Jesus when we face unjust treatment and suffering because we follow Jesus. And the principle of application, the main point I want us to think about today is that we are to follow the steps of Jesus as we are called to submit and suffer by trusting in God's perfect justice. We, as followers of Jesus, we follow in His footsteps, and following Him means a call to submit, even in unjust relationships, and suffer by trusting in God's perfect justice. We're going to look at that in three parts. First, the, the call to submit. Second, the call to suffer. And then the way that they can do that in the early church and the way that we can do that is by trusting in God's perfect justice. First, look at this call to submit. And even by saying that word, I know many of us recoil, we reject it, we cringe. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, even these first three words of verse 18 probably cause you to pause for a lot of different reasons. That first word, servants, some translations, slaves. And then second and third words, be subject. Now, what does this mean? Some of you read this, and you have all kinds of initial reactions, and you either just want to stop listening or just say, well, the Bible is something I can't listen to anymore because it seems to promote something I don't really like or is not good. Now, first, the word servant is different than the word that Paul typically uses for slave. That's why they translate it as servant. It's not doulos, slave. It's a word that typically describes a household servant in the home. But it's still not a better situation because this person wouldn't have full freedom. And when you hear this, that's why we react. That's why we get worried. And it's crucial that when the Bible addresses slavery or servanthood or someone who doesn't have full freedom, that we understand what the Bible is saying, what Peter's saying, because we want to understand honestly what the Scriptures are saying, but also we have to remember as Americans who have this historical baggage and sin that taints our nation of human trafficking based upon race and taking people from Africa for hundreds of years. We need to understand that, and we have to be sensitive to that, because that national sin, even though it was hundreds of years ago, and even though it stopped, it still rings and affects society today in all sorts of painful ways. And so when we come to a text like this, many people get worried because this text especially, like some of the Paul's letters that address this context, a lot of people, we have to admit and recognize, Christians have abused this text to promote and even spiritualize slavery. That's one of the unfortunate uses and abuses of this text. On the other end, many people today 
And many of you who are younger, especially maybe you've heard of this word deconstruction in the church. You're trying to process everything that you grew up in the faith. They'll look at a text like this and use it and say, well, if this is wrong, then everything in the Bible must be wrong. And so on a surface read, and I don't ever encourage just a surface read, at a surface read, though, it seems at worst that this text seems to promote slavery. And maybe at best it's apathetic towards that. So what do we do with this? We don't actually have time to unpack all of it, what the Bible says about slavery, because it would be the only thing we talk about in this time that we have. But we did actually spend a lengthier time on this topic last year in our series on Exodus, because in Exodus chapter 1, it deals with slavery. And it's amazing because as the people of God were freed from slavery, God had to command them not to have slaves themselves and enslave people, because sin embeds each one of us. But let me just at least address two points, because I don't want to just ignore this. Two points, very brief. Slavery in the Bible is different than the slavery you have in your mind, but it doesn't automatically make it any better. So we have to understand there are differences, and I think to accurately understand what Peter's saying, you have to understand it in its historical context. In the first century, slaves were generally not distinguishable by race or by speech or by clothing because most people in society were poor and one-fourth of the world were slaves, you wouldn't generally be able to tell who was a slave or not. It wasn't a race-based system. In fact, if you look at history, every single nation, almost every single people in the history of humanity has held slaves. And it usually wasn't based upon race. It was based upon war. And so one conquering nation would come and take over a nation, and if, especially if they were very brutal, they would usually kill off any fighting men and enslave all the women and children. And that's how slavery happened, most often. But household slaves were also a common occurrence because in a system of economics where there's no bankruptcy laws, if you became indebted to someone, the way you paid off that debt was to be an indentured servant to someone until you could pay off what you owe to that person. Another occurrence of household slaves was there were very wealthy families which almost kind of had like a patronage system where they would take on medical doctors or musicians or artists who would align themselves to these wealthy families to gain access. But most people, that doesn't make it better. They were still people who would face harsh treatment. About one-fourth of the population in Peter's writing of this time was slaves, they experienced lack of freedom. So even though it was different, it's not to romanticize it. I think sometimes scholars, even people talk about it as different and somehow it's better. No, it's not better. It is different though. But many people ask them, well, why doesn't the Bible, why doesn't the New Testament do more to speak against this evil institution? In a moment, I'll show you, it actually does address directly the way that American slavery was carried out. But in this particular context of the household servant, why didn't Peter, why didn't Paul say, well, just, just free yourself, just go, this is a terrible situation? Because I want you to know, if you're honest with the Scriptures, if you're honest with Jesus, the main way that Jesus throws a revolution was not through social political revolution. Think about the, in the moments right before Jesus was crucified, right? Pilate tried to kind of get Jesus off the hook, and so he presented as his tradition allowed for another person, and he said, hey, let one of them go. They were hope, he was really hoping they would let Jesus go. So they put up Barabbas, who was a social revolutionary, who tried to overthrow Rome, and who do they want? 
They wanted the revolutionary. Every single time they wanted to, the Jewish people, the disciples of Jesus, wanted to make him king. They wanted him to be the ruler, like toss off Rome. No, Jesus refused. Because the main fight that Jesus came to fight was against sin and death. And the main way he wants his people to create revolution is through individual salvation that then impacts churches, that impacts society because it's from an inside-out revolution. And so if the main goal of the New Testament was to address this institution, go fight Rome, it would have been very futile. Even Jesus didn't fight Rome in that way. But here's the second thing, and I already alluded to this, but the slavery in our minds about our history was and is consistently condemned in the Bible. So when people use texts like this to spiritualize or promote slavery, they're doing so by ignoring other parts of Scripture. A careful student of Scripture will recognize you cannot have contradictory comments in the Scriptures. Scripture does not contradict itself. And so if you find something that seems to contradict, you have to wrestle with it and give it the benefit of the doubt. Those scriptures consistently reject and condemn the slavery that we did in our American history. Look at Exodus 21, which we looked at last year. It said, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone who is found in possession of him shall be put to death. Abundantly clear. If you look at the list of sins that Paul calls terrible and deserving of God's wrath in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he names enslavers. And so consistently from Old to New Testament, God condemns human trafficking. He condemns a system based upon destroying or diminishing someone because of the image of God, because of based upon some way that you look at them. God denounces it consistently throughout Scripture. And so when we come to texts like this, we need to be careful, discerning, thoughtful. There will always be things in the Bible that our culture seems to disagree with. And what I want you to do when you come to texts like this is learn to wrestle. Not just take what other people say about a text. Because people today are using texts like this and say, well, if this is bad, well, then we should disregard all of the Bible. No, 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 no. Be more discerning. The Scriptures do condemn slavery. And so if it does address this version of slavery, well, why and how? And we've got to be more careful to ask good questions of it. Now, that word slave, servant, is huge baggage. I don't even have enough time to go any further on it, but I at least want to give you some exposure to that. But look at the, the second word and third word that come up in verse 18. If servant or slave wasn't hard enough, look at verse 18 again. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I mean, if slave is already something we cringe at, recoil against, you hear submit, and maybe in the, in the context of American individualism, in all of our society, we live in a society that's all about being true to yourself and don't be against your heart and follow your heart. You hear submit and you're like, what is this talking about? In fact, out of my own flesh, that's what I'm like. I, I basically, if anyone tells me something, my initial reaction is basically to reject it and fight against it. And so even I experienced this in a very silly way this past summer. We got to go to Disneyland and we got to use the pool 
at the hotel there at Disneyland, and the pool has this like little slide area. Uh, they have a huge slide, which my kids were afraid of, but they had a little slide area, and we were having fun. My older one's just getting comfortable with water. My, my younger one's getting a little afraid, so we had to like drag her into the water, kicking and screaming just to get her used to it. But the little one, or the older one, sorry, we were having fun. We were trying to play on the slide, trying to get her comfortable with water, and we would like go as fast as we can. Like We would go you know, down feet first. We'd also go face first, and then all I saw now here, beep, the lifeguard like say, no, you can't go down face first. And my reaction is like, what are you talking about? It's like, I'm going to go face first into this water. You don't tell me if I can go face first or not. And I'm like, Leah, just go. Just go again. That's my, that's, my, that's my reaction when someone tells me, don't do something. See, our, our culture's highest value is self-expression, self-actualization. And think about all the heroes in our, in our stories, in our culture. They're all mavericks. They're all Moanas, right? Moana is this girl who just wants to toss off. I don't want to ruin the movie for you if you've never seen it, but it's been a few years, right? So, like, she just wants to toss off all of her history. How far can I go? I'm going to leave everything of my family. That She's the hero because she rejects all authority, like, over her. Over and over again, though, if you look at the Bible, you want to know how you most understand who you are is by submitting to God and His Word. You want to understand how to best flourish as who God made you to be? It's not off of tossing off of everything around you. It's actually by humbly submitting to God and His Word. And that often means sometimes submitting even to unjust people above you because that's the following and that's the steps of Jesus. Now, the reason he says you should be subject, even in people who are not you know, good and gentle, but even unjust, is given to us in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what he mentions here is that there's a lot of you know, suffering that can come from your foolishness. So if you're suffering pain or consequences because of your foolishness or because of your personal sin, that's you. That's your own fault. But if you're doing good, you're following God, you're honoring God first, and you still face injustice, the reason we continue to do good and then sometimes submit is because it is for the glory of God and His delight. It's a gracious thing. God sees us overcoming evil with good, and He is praised and glorified because it's walking in the steps of Jesus. It's reflecting His character. When we face unjust people in situations with grace and good, we overcome evil with good. We reflect the glory and character of God. I remember this story reading a number of years ago. A pastor, a Korean pastor, Yang Wang Sun, in 1948, he lived along the 38th parallel in Korea, and that was the moment when communists took over his town. And they took his two sons, his older sons, and they executed them. Eventually, communists were driven out, and they caught some of the people who uh, committed these atrocious murders of the people there. And he was able to identify one of the young people who actually may have been the one who executed and ordered the execution of his sons. And somehow God compelled him by his spirit, by being close to him and understanding the gospel. 
he was led to this crazy request. He went to the courthouse and asked for this person who killed his sons to be released so that he could adopt this person because he was still a child. And he began to plead on his behalf. And they were like, what are you, what are you talking about? You're crazy. And eventually they did because his 13-year-old daughter also in her testimony asked for the release of this person so that she could be his brother. This family overcame this unjust, terrible situation with good, and God sees that as a gracious thing. It brings him glory. That's why when you hear stories like that, your heart burns because it reflects the character of God. Now, we don't have similar situations, most of us, as household servants. We don't have anything close to slavery, at least in this modern time, in this country. It certainly exists around the world. But we do have situations where God may call us to submit, even to unjust people and circumstances, to be a witness for Jesus in the glory of God. And so let me ask you two questions. Where do you need to grow in submission? There may be some particular relationship whether in school or in work or in family, that the Holy Spirit wants you to hear this and say, you need to grow in submission. It's not a moral thing. It's not against God's will. Maybe it's just your preference, but God's calling you to submit for His glory and for the good of His name. He also calls us in verse 20, do good because God sees it as a gracious thing. Where do you need to grow in doing good? God calls us to submit because it's a gracious thing to God in His sight. It's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? It goes contrary to many of the things that people talk about when it means to follow Jesus today, but it's, it's clear to us. I mean, you, it's actually honest about Jesus and His life, as we'll see near the end. He, he's a suffering servant. In the following and the steps of Jesus, we are called to submit. Where do you need to grow in submission? Where do you need to grow in doing good for His name? Now, if submission wasn't hard enough, the second part, equally related to this, is a call to suffering. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. We are to follow in his steps to by submission, even in unjust circumstances and people, and even called to suffer. No, suffering, I mean, this is a word that we rather not have as a part of our vocabulary, don't we? I mean, I almost spend, if I think about it, if I'm honest, I spend almost all of my time, energy, effort creating the most comfortable situation, avoiding any bit of suffering I can. But in the last half year, we've, we've had some new people join our church, and I've been able to, to hear from their stories. And some of these people come from different countries, different cultures, circumstances, where there truly is suffering for the name of claiming Jesus, and they've shared these testimonies with me. And I, I'm so thankful for these brothers and sisters that have shared these stories because it reminds me that we are called to suffer. I'm reminded that the, 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 actually American Christianity, a wealthy Christianity that's super comfortable, that has power, we are the anomaly in church history. If you look at all the world today outside the Western world, it mostly is persecution. 
So the circumstances in Afghanistan actually are not out of the ordinary. They're normal in all of church history. They're normal even in the world today. We are the anomaly. In fact, maybe because we are the anomaly, it's why the Holy Spirit isn't as present or seemingly present among us. Because we spend time avoiding the very thing that God is calling us to, which is the call to suffer for his name. And here's the truth about suffering. Maybe young people have a hard time hearing this. And maybe our young people, as parents who are here in this service, maybe our young people have a hard time hearing it because we guard them from it too much. In fact, we promote the very idol of avoiding discomfort and suffering. Because the truth is, if you follow Jesus honestly and faithfully, either you are right now in the midst of suffering or you're just right around the corner from it. That's the truth about suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, again, just like I mentioned before, he's not talking about suffering because of your foolishness, because of your sin, but because you are faith in Jesus. And he says, we're called to suffer. We talk about all kinds of calling, a call to ministry. Maybe you're called to serve in a particular place in a season. Maybe you're called to a church. Maybe you're called to move or called to a certain job. Do you realize you're called as a Christian to suffer? This is the kind of call if Jesus was literally calling you on a phone, you'd be like, ignore this, silence this, block that number. I don't want to answer this call, Jesus. Right? You see the little bubbles pop up in your text, and you're like, nope, I'm not going to look at that one. But this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what you need to understand about this calling. If you are suffering right now because of following Jesus in his footsteps, that's not a failure of God's plan in your life. Suffering is not a hurdle. It's not an obstruction to God's plan for you and your good in your life. Suffering is not God forgetting about his promises. It's not him being unfaithful to you. Suffering is part of our call because it's at the center of what it means to follow Jesus who suffered and was a suffering servant. This means suffering, if you're truly honest about following Jesus, it's not an option to following Jesus. And so when we present Jesus, it's something very easy. All you have to do is just say a few things and that's it. And in some ways, that's true because we all have to, we have an innocent faith. We just trust Jesus. But I think we're also doing a disservice to what it really means to follow Jesus when we don't talk about a call to Jesus is a call to suffer. It's simultaneously holding the truth that everything will be made right in Jesus, that we have an imperishable inheritance, that we have a living hope, and at the same time, following Jesus. If you look at his life and look at what he did while he was here on earth, it is a call to suffer. Walking in his footsteps of suffering. Now how? Look at verse 21 again. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is our example in this suffering. He set the path. We need to remember Jesus walked this path of submission before us. He didn't have a carefree life. Think about, he, he in, responded to a call to homelessness, nomad life. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, in what manner did Jesus suffer? In what example did he give to us? Look at verses 22 to 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I don't know about you, but when people sin against me, my re immediate reaction is to defend myself, to lash out, to fight them. Maybe that's like you. And so when, 
<laughs> this is the following the steps of Jesus. When he committed no sin, he, there was no deceit, so he didn't lie, he didn't try and make the situation better for himself, he didn't respond with words when they reviled him. When he suffered, he didn't respond with threats as certainly as the Son of God with all authority he had every right to. Right? Instead, Jesus said, think about all the words he said on the cross. They were reviling him. They were beating him. They would put a crown of thorns and thrust him. What words did Jesus have? I'm thirsty. It is finished. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It reminded me, as I was thinking about that example, and that's an example not just for Jesus. He says we are to follow in those steps. And you see this if you look at church history. You look at the history of people who follow Jesus. You see so many people who walk in these steps. It reminded me of the story of Ruby. I love this story. Ruby was a little African-American girl who grew up in the 1960s. The Supreme Court had just ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional, and now schools had to uh, integrate from their segregation. And she was seven years old, and she had to show up to school, and riots were breaking out at her school. Many of the white families were still angry about this vehemently angry. And so they pulled all their children out of school and lined up their children, and along with their children, they screamed. And so much so, there's such a riot and such a scene in front of her school that federal marshals had to go to her school every single day to escort her into the school safely. And so think about it. She's walking into school as a seven-year-old, and I have a seven-year-old now, and think about all the, the things that a seven-year-old has to worry about. Like, did I bring all the stuff I need to bring? Did I, bring, did I, did I finish my homework? And my, my seven-year-old, that's when they start to become a little self-conscious. Uh, the reason I said the Lord's Prayer in the King James Version is because that's the way that my daughter has been memorizing it. And so I had her say the prayer with me in the first service. And, and she, was, she was excited about it during the week. But immediately, when she stands in front of everyone, she gets self-conscious. So all the things that a seven-year-old thinks about is because... And all that, plus angry, swearing, cursing adults, now lashing at this little girl. It was a, of interest, this scenario, to a Harvard psychiatrist. And so he, he came down and observed this scene for several days. And he would see her walk and be escorted. And he was interested in her mindset and how she was handling it. And one day she, he noticed that she paused and seemed to speak to someone. And he wanted to know what she had said. And so she, he pulled her aside later and asked her, well, I saw you pause for a moment and have a conversation and speak some words. What did you say to the person? And she responded, no, I wasn't talking to anyone. And he was surprised, like, well, I saw you talking. I saw your mouth moving. What did you say? And she said, oh, you know, my parents taught me every day to pray for my enemies. And that morning, as I saw the people yelling at me and screaming at me, I realized I hadn't prayed for them yet, and so I paused right there in the middle of all that screaming, and I prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of steps should we take? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten. Those are the steps. Does your heart burn when you hear that? Because that's the steps of Jesus. Now, how could he do this? 
Because Jesus is saying, Jesus is in our example. We follow his steps. So it's not just that he's God he could do this. It's something we can do. That's why Ruby could do it. That's why if you look at history, that's why if you look at the stories of Christians in Afghanistan today or you, you join us in the prayer meeting this coming week with the hear from Brian, in the various ways our missionaries across the world are actually suffering for the name of Jesus, how can they do this? How can they walk in these steps? How can they submit in the midst of injustice? How can they suffer and respond faithfully to this call? And the answer is given to us in the end of verse 23. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is how Jesus walked into suffering. This is how Ruby walks into into suffering. That's how you and I walk into suffering, by entrusting ourselves to the Father who judges justly. Jesus trusted that the Father would judge perfectly, and so he doesn't have to lie, right? Think, think about all the, the trials that Jesus occurred. He had so many trumped-up trials along the way to his crucifixion. They, they kept asking him, do you claim that you are the Son of God? And he says, you have said it so, right? He, he doesn't lie about it. He doesn't say, well, if I, don't, if, I, if I just lie about it now, then you know, I'll be able to live another day to continue ministry. No, he doesn't lie. When they, when they speak evil against Jesus, he doesn't have to threaten them. He doesn't have to respond with sin and back. He didn't sin. And why can he do this? Why can he suffer so differently? Because he trusted the Father's perfect judgment. We need to understand something about God. Yes, He's loving and compassionate. Yes. But this God is perfect in His judgment. He says, if you look at Scripture, He doesn't forget. Now, we'd like to think about God forgetting our sin, but yes, He doesn't treat us as if we are sinners still in Jesus. But He never forgets anything. He knows every wrong, every sin in the history of humanity. And he will make every one of those sins right, either by the blood of Jesus or his perfect justice. He's not a pushover. He's not unconcerned when there's sin. He is a perfect judge. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he could entrust even his death even as unjust as it was, even as suffering as it was, because he knew if God is a perfect judge and I die an innocent death, I will be vindicated. And that's what happened. Jesus entrusted his hope, his identity, his future to the Father. Perfect submission to the Father. Walking through the calling of suffering because he trusted the perfect justice of God. And Jesus' resurrection was that vindication. It was the reward for perfect submission. He submitted to authorities that were sinful. He submitted to the Father's will. He suffered injustice, and God vindicated him so he would be the person who his name would cause the bowing of every knee and the worship of every tongue forever and ever and ever. And the reason we can respond to, to this call of suffering faithfully isn't just because Jesus is an example as much as he is in this text. He's also our Savior. That's why Peter, as he's talking about submission, servanthood, suffering, he directly quotes Isaiah 53 because it's all about the suffering servant. Look at verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die in sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus isn't just our example. He's also our suffering servant Savior. He did it first. He provided a way. And so we are free to submit. We are free to suffer with joy and hope, not dismissing the pain or suffering, but with a thing that transcends it all because we know whether we have unjust leaders, governments, bosses, families, authorities, teachers, Jesus and his vindication means we have hope of perfect vindication. Peter says, you know what he's saying here about suffering? You know your biggest problem in your life isn't the suffering that you're going through. It's actually sin. And if Jesus has already dealt with sin and salvation, that means you can walk in his steps. You can face suffering in a totally new way. Friends, I think this is a word for us. Especially as Americans, we need to wake up to this reality. I need to wake up to this reality. I was so convicted and I'm still wrestling and having a hard time with this because everything in me as an American wants to avoid all suffering and discomfort. But the way of Jesus, the steps of Jesus is a call to submit and to suffer by trusting in God's perfect justice. So, what are the areas of life, of your life right now, that you're facing suffering because of following Jesus? Because I know there are, as in my conversations with people in our church, there are people in our church in various ways who face suffering because they want to make Jesus the center of their lives. And I pray that as you hear this, you remember this is a call. This is not a plan B. This is God's will and God's good for you and your life. He has not forgotten you. He loves you. And for some of us who aren't in the midst of suffering, maybe the opposite question we need to ask ourselves is, maybe we never suffer because we're not actually walking in the steps of Jesus. Maybe we are a believer, but we have a dysfunctional, a hijacked view of following Jesus. And so we think following Jesus is all flourishing by the American dream or all comfort by the American standards. But no, be honest with Scripture. Maybe you aren't experiencing the joy of Jesus and the revival that Jesus wants for your life because the very thing he's called you to, which is suffering, you spend all of your life walking away from it. In fact, I would say, I would be bold as to say, I think the reason the American church is so far from God isn't because of all the things that we're seeing in our culture when it comes to sexuality, it isn't because of drugs in our society. Those are things that we need to address and be face in our society. But the reason the church in this country is not near to Jesus is because when we say suffering, no, Jesus. But the very way that he wants to shine maybe is through us walking through it, trusting him, trusting a God who judges perfectly. Jesus in the midst of suffering, saw that God could make things all right. Do you believe this? And that belief is demonstrated not by you agreeing by nodding in this moment. It is demonstrated by your life. As you walk into your homes, 
your circumstances, your workplaces, your institutions and schools? Do you see that this call to submit in suffering may be actually one of the strongest ways God wants to shine the truth of the gospel to the world around us? Jesus says, you realize his calling to us and walking with him is to come to die to ourself, to carry our cross daily. That even in the midst of that, you find glory. The kingdom, think about Jesus' kingdom. Think about the, the Sermon on the Mount. Everything is backwards, isn't it? It's a radical, countercultural view. It is the weak that are strong. And so by our submission and by our suffering and by trusting in Christ, we are made strong. In his kingdom, the, the poor are the rich. In his kingdom, the, the servant, the lowest of low, is the greatest. In his kingdom, submission to him is where you find flourishing and freedom. In his kingdom, the way up is down. And so church, we are called to walk in his steps by submitting, even in the face of unjust leaders and people, and even called to suffering because we trust God is a perfect, powerful judge who will make everything right. Thank you.